It, it's actually just over a year ago that um, I was here when Robert Francis presented his findings in his report to the King's Fund conference. And I think it was an important and significant moment for the NHS. And since then, that report and the findings of the report have resonated around the world. And I've been in conferences in Canada and Australia and uh, in other countries where the Francis report is studied and regarded and thought about. But I also remember that we were all a bit shocked that there were 290 recommendations and many of us wondered what really the point of that was going to be and whether you could change the system with that kind of level of detailed intervention. And at the conference last year, I said I thought there were really only four things in the Francis report that really, really mattered and that would really make a change. And I have to say, a year on, I feel very much the same. And those four things are transparency, accountability, patient-centeredness, and from those three, culture change. So what's happened in a year? Well, the government has published numerous reports. It's published its own response, Hard Truths. It's published the Berwick Review, the Cavendish Review, the Cluid Review, and many of them have really interesting and valuable things to say. But does a report ever change anything very much? The government has taken some real steps in relation to transparency. We have monthly reports on staffing and safety. We have quarterly reports on complaints. We have a commitment to both professional and organisational duty of candour, which I think we'll be talking about in more detail today. Uh, we have never events to be published by NHS England, and we have in current legislation a new criminal offence of willful neglect. So there's some evidence of movement on the issue of transparency, but there's very much less on accountability. The fit and proper person test, which uh, was going to be applied across the leadership of the NHS, is apparently restricted only to people who work at the senior level in trusts to be overseen by CQC. Despite the recommendations of a working group in the summer last year, as far as I can see, it's not to be extended either to clinical commissioning group directors or indeed to the executives and non-executives on NHS England. And then the barring scheme for managers. They're all going to be banned, as far as I remember, from moving around the NHS. That too, in my view, I think wisely, seems to have fallen off the government's agenda. Uh, whistleblowing remains a real problem, and again, I hope that's an issue that we will look at more today. And as for patient-centred, the area of the report where Francis actually said least, well, I'm not sure how far at national level the NHS has become more patient-centred. Care.data you might say, is a case in point. Uh, David Gilbert of the Centre of Patient Leadership said to me, it's everything about us without us. Care.data giving patient data away without consent to the insurance industry. 
it seems an odd way to put patients at the heart of everything we do. And I wonder what NHS England was thinking when it agreed that it was effective to communicate by sending us all a pizza leaflet through our letterboxes. So I think the pattern of progress over the last year at national level is pretty patchy. But change, as usual, has come indeed from the NHS itself, from people who work in the NHS, in the front line, in trusts, in GP practices, in outpatients, in clinics. I think for many of us, the Francis Report was a shock, a challenge. We looked into the mirror and we didn't like what we saw. And that has certainly, I have to say, been the case for the regulators. So let me just turn and talk a little bit about where professional regulation has got to a year on. In the paper which I'm drawing on for this talk, which is called Asymmetry of Influence, the Role of Regulators in Patient Safety, available on all good websites, that's to say the Health Foundations and mine, but also available, I please say, outside, if you want it, at the Health Foundation stand. This paper, with I should give credit to my colleague, Douglas Bilton, who wrote it with me. This paper looks at the pattern of regulation in the NHS. Regulators were widely criticised in the Francis report for acting too little and too late. Some of that was absolutely true and fair, and the regulators have reacted to it. Some of it, in my view, misunderstands what regulators can and should be doing. And my starting point in this is actually in Don Berwick's report, where he says that regulation is too complicated and must be reformed. The current regulatory system, he says, is bewildering in its complexity, prone to overlaps of remit and gaps between different agencies. It should be simplified. So let's just take one small part of it. That's the bit that regulates health professionals. There are nine separate regulators. Seven of them cover the UK. One covers Great Britain. One covers only Northern Ireland. Some regulate single professions. Others regulate multiple professions. The Health and Care Professions Council regulates 15 different professions. Some are huge. The NMC, which Jackie Smith leads, has just about 700,000 registrants. Some are tiny. The regulator of chiropractors has fewer than 3,000 registrants. Some are very old. The GMC is over 150 years old. Some are really quite new. Many are less than a decade in existence. The Optical Council regulates students. Nobody else does. The Health and Care Professions Council regulates social workers in England, but not in Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland, where they're regulated by three different and separate regulators. Those nine regulators have common functions, but different legislation, different standards, different approach, different efficiency, different effectiveness, and different sanctions. It's an extraordinary muddle, and that's only a small part of the many regulatory organisations that oversee and work in the NHS. There are what I like to think of as the five Ps of regulatory impact. 
we have products overseen generally by the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, regulating everything from medicines to hip joint replacements. We have processes or practices regulated by NICE. We have prices regulated by Monitor and the Competition Commission. We have places regulated by the Care Quality Commission and others. And we have people, as I've just described, regulated by the GMC and the NMC. And each of these different regulatory approaches <coughs> has different levels and capacity for impact. That's my point about asymmetry. And we cannot understand the regulatory world if we don't understand the differences. So, for instance, for MHRA, it is actually quite possible to specify in considerable detail both the chemical formulation of a medicine and the packaging and delivery of that medicine. You can be quite precise. Errors will happen. Fraud will happen. Counterfeit medicines do happen. But you can be quite precise about everything down to the detail of the color and lettering on a package. That is a very different kind of regulatory impact from the impact that we can have when we tell people how to behave or what to do. And the public discourse that we currently have around regulation seems to me to often imagine quite mistakenly that regulation will make the world a better place. If you listen to the political debates about regulation, particularly in the House of Lords, regulation is a kind of utopian enterprise. If only we had enough regulation, the world would be perfect. Regulate everything and all will be well. But in fact, in reality, regulation is not remotely utopian. It's relentlessly utilitarian. Regulation is plodding. It deals with detail. It's about the delivery at the lowest level of functionality. It seeks not a perfect world, but an adequate good for the greatest number. If you think about the GMC and what the NMC do, when they're selecting nurses and doctors to go onto the register, when you're admitted to the register of the GMC, it's not because you're the best doctor in your year. It's not even because you're a good doctor. It's only because you're a good enough doctor. The last doctor in the pass rate in the examination to get admitted to the register is the doctor who is only just good enough. That's what regulators do. They define the just good enough. It's for others, including the medical royal colleges, the universities, individual doctors themselves to improve and develop quality and to turn as many good enough doctors as possible into the best and the excellent. So I think one of the confusions that we have when we think about regulation, one of the great fallacies about the debate around regulation's role is the confusion of the good enough with quality improvement. And I think that spectacularly came together in the conflicting roles of the Care Quality Commission that led it in its previous incarnation into such a turmoil about whether its role was to be responsible for quality across the entire NHS or whether its role was to inspect 
or to regulate uh, or merely to describe which trust pools and trusts were good enough. And I think over the last year, the Care Quality Commission has indeed addressed those issues and has tried very hard to think through what it can usefully contribute to the development of quality while setting a baseline of the good enough. I think that the new chief inspectors, interestingly, part of the government's response to Francis' report, but not in the Francis report itself, I think the new chief inspectors actually have been impressively uh, good, partly because I think of the quality of the individuals who have taken on those roles, but partly because it allows a clear focus on what it is to be effective. Um, so some of what the Care Quality Commission has done in terms of real consultation, thought and engagement has made a difference. But the real issue remains, how does regulation interact with real people in the real world? Some research which we published by Oliver Quick at the uh, University of Bristol uh, looked at all the different things that influence people's behavior in, um, in health settings. And uh, he identified about 40 different things in the literature. And you'll not be terribly surprised if I tell you that regulation came in at about 38 uh, in that. And you'll not be surprised either if I tell you that what influenced people most, the leadership and the behaviors within the team in which they work. It's kind of common sense. And we all see it. We see that's why in an individual trust, you can have one ward, one clinic, one service, which is performing superbly because of the quality and commitment of the leadership within that. And even in the same trust, the same hospital, the same place, uh, a poorer quality in a different uh, service. There is much evidence that people behave well and do quality work when they're engaged, empowered, and respected. How can we expect care assistants, nurses, and junior doctors to show dignity and respect and compassion if they're not treated with respect themselves? But the practical consequences of the misapplication of regulation and, and the multiplicity of regulatory organizations is the plethora of advice and guidance and standards that people and tell people and organizations how to act. This is alienating and disempowering. The NHS Library, for example, has 152 separate publishers of guidelines and 17 sets of guidelines on how to write guidelines. There are over 3,000 guidelines on the DH website and 1,000 more on NICE's website. Jane Carthy and her colleagues in a paper published in 2011 called this an extraordinary and uncoordinated proliferation and a threat to patient safety. So it seems to me that the real lessons of Francis still have to be learned. We don't need more rules, regulations, and guidelines. We need more personal responsibility, more professionalism, and more decision-making near to patients. As the King's Fund itself wisely said in a report a couple of years ago, the NHS is not over-managed, it's over-administrated and under-managed. 
So we're slowly learning more and more about how regulation and humans interact, about what you might call the social psychology of regulation. And I think that the professional regulators are beginning but need to do a great deal more to think about what it is that they can do that will help health professionals to be better professionals. All regulations have unintended consequences. And we rarely think about just how people will behave in response to our regulatory intervention. Um, I want to take a couple of examples from right outside the health world at all. And some of you may have seen a really interesting editorial in the BMJ recently by Ben Goldacre and David Spiegelhalter. And they looked at the evidence around the wearing of cycle helmets and safety. They just took as their main point that the BMA itself has a policy of arguing for the regulation of cycle helmets. So cycle helmets must be compulsory. And they said, so what's the evidence? If it was indeed compulsory to wear a cycle helmet, how would that reduce death and injury to cyclists? And the evidence is extremely interesting. The first is that most cyclists are not killed as a result of head injuries. They are killed as a result of crush injuries to the chest and pelvis as they're pulled under the front wheels of a lorry. That's actually the major cause of death. Secondly, they looked at the behavioural patterns of cyclists themselves. And there's research evidence that shows that cyclists who wear helmets behave in more risky ways and cycle faster and more dangerously because they feel safer because they're wearing a helmet and they feel less vulnerable. Even more interestingly, motorists drive closer to cyclists who are wearing helmets because motorists too think those cyclists look safer and they give a wider berth to cyclists who are not wearing helmets. So what they conclude is that making helmets compulsory will not increase cycle, cyclist safety and that in fact the safest countries to cycle are countries like Denmark where nobody wears a helmet but everybody rides a bicycle and the cars are kept entirely separate from the bicycles and there's a culture which accepts cycling as a natural part of life. Another example also from road traffic management, which I think is very interesting. Many of you in London will have uh, been to Exhibition Road. Recently, uh, in Exhibition Road, where the uh, Imperial, uh, where the, um, the Science Museum is and Imperial College, they recently removed all the road markings. They removed the pavements and they allow traffic and pedestrians to mingle without any rules, apart from a general rule that you go up one side and down the other. And it works. Everybody accommodates everybody else because people stop thinking there's a regulation here and start thinking for themselves and making safety decisions for themselves, both motorists and pedestrians. I think it's a really interesting example of what happens when you deregulate an environment and people start taking personal responsibility. If people are given clear responsibility for themselves and others, they mostly behave responsibly. So a year on, what is to be done? 
Well, I think in a promise to learn, a commitment to act, Berwick and his colleagues say, fear in the workplace is toxic to both safety and improvement. And I say absolutely yes to that. But that doesn't mean that we should remove personal responsibility for error. Because personal responsibility is, in fact, empowering. It's central to what being a good professional is. And it's an important motivator for safe practice. So as I've written previously, it's the role of regulation to provide a framework in which professionalism can flourish. It's not the role of regulation to substitute for professionalism. So more and more regulation actually reduces safety. We need regulation that empowers decision-making and responsibility. There's been very much work done in the last year between the CQC, the GMC, the NMC, and others to try and identify common objectives and values and to create a shared model of regulation. But I have to say that they are hampered by outmoded and inconsistent legislation and by a lack of clarity from government as to what regulation is for, what government thinks regulation should really be doing. I think all governments, always following events, swing between abolishing the red tape and regulating everything that moves, sometimes saying both things at the same time. In the year ahead, we need to work hard at changing culture. And that, I think, means quite simply how we behave personally. All of us are the makers of the culture in which we work. We are not the victims of the culture in which we work. We are the culture in which we work. And we need to take responsibility for that. If we want good to come from the pain of Mid-Staffordshire, Winterbourne View, Morecambe Bay, we need to take personal responsibility in the small ethics of everyday life and not to blame others. Thank you.